Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of 1 Peter. As we continue our study in this letter, so I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2 or follow along up on the screen. One of the earliest Christian writings that we still have around today is a letter from an anonymous Christian, and he's writing to a friend named Diognetus, and it's dated very early to the second century. And in it, he describes the life of the Christians together. Listen to what he writes. For the Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country, nor language, nor the customs which they observe. For they do not inhabit cities of their own, They do not employ a peculiar form of speech, nor do they lead an eccentric way of life. But living in all cities as God has determined and following the local customs with respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and striking way of life. They live in their own countries, but simply as sojourners or pilgrims. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry like everyone else. They have children, but they do not expose their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the established laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all and are persecuted by all. And I think if the apostle Peter had still been alive when this letter was written, he would have said amen to that description because that's exactly what Peter is talking about here in his letter. In chapter 2, verse 11, he describes Christians as sojourners and exiles or aliens and strangers or pilgrims. In other words, we're passing our days on earth, but we're really citizens of heaven. And Peter says, if we're strangers here on earth and our true home is in heaven, that should change the way we live here on earth in the meantime. In other words, our lives here on earth should stand out. We are to have a wonderful and striking way of life as as Christians. Listen to how Peter puts it in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light so that we can then shine light into the darkness. Not only in gospel proclamation, not only with our words, but with our deeds that adorn the gospel with a a wonderful and striking way of life so that unbelievers in a pagan world would see our good deeds and be those who glorify our Father in heaven. So Peter's gonna go on to give several areas of life 
that we're to have this wonderful and striking way of life, several spheres of life. We saw a couple weeks ago, one of those areas is as citizens in government, to be wonderful and striking citizens under government authority. In a couple weeks, we're going to see we're to have a wonderful and striking way of life in our homes and marriages. And this morning, we're going to see that we're to have a wonderful and striking way of life in our work, in the workplace. So that's where we are today in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you are sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is God's word. Now, wait a minute. I thought you said we were going to talk about having a wonderful and striking way of life in the workplace, in our work lives. This passage started off, servants or slaves be subject to your masters. Now, wait a second. What in the world are you talking about? How does that apply to me? And not only does it seem not to apply to us today, You might have the question, why in the world is Peter not challenging the institution of slavery? He's saying, servants, submit to your masters. Is he somehow endorsing slavery? Why is he not taking this opportunity to challenge it? And so I want to start off by by kind of getting us into this and talking about servants and masters. Uh, First, we need to be careful not to imagine the race-based slavery that we're familiar with in our nation's history when we come to this passage. Uh, The word that Peter uses here is actually uh, refers to a household or domestic servant. Uh, So many of these servants would have been well-educated. Some would have served as doctors, teachers, managers, musicians, craftsmen. Uh, Some even had the opportunity, not all, but some had the opportunity to purchase their freedom uh, so when we read about slavery or servants and masters in the Bible, it's, it's a little different than we automatically think. Uh, but they were slaves nonetheless. They were property. And sometimes they had very harsh masters who, who would treat them cruelly, as we see in this passage. So why is Peter not challenging that? You know, well, quite simply, they, they lived in the Roman Empire. Uh, they didn't have an opportunity to challenge it. They didn't have the channels to, to change that at the time. Uh, overthrowing the institution of slavery at this time would have been unrealistic. Uh, it would have been no help to his readers to rail against the institution of slavery when there was nothing they could do to change it. So Peter is just addressing his readers and the circumstances they find themselves in. Uh, 
and helping them to live in a way that pleases God. That's all he's doing. Uh, so, and lastly, Peter, by addressing servants, the lowest of the low in that society, he's showing us that if they can endure in their situation and live in a way that pleases God, how much more can every single person in this room? Right, you see what he's doing. He's, say, he's taking servants and he's giving them as an example to say, if the lowest of the low in that society who had the most difficult of circumstances, if they can live in a way that pleases God in their situation, how much more can you and me? In your work, in your home, in your office, in your classroom, whatever context God has called you to, we're called to a striking way of life. And what is this wonderful and striking way of life? What does it look like? Well, first, it's a posture of service. It's service. Slaves, be subject to your masters or submit to your masters with all respect. We're called to submit to authority. I love getting to fill in for Archie on Sundays like this when I get to talk about submitting to authority. It's great. I love it. Wonderful. (laughs) So excited to do that today. That's a difficult statement for us to hear, is it not? Submit or be subject to authority. I think it's safe to say we don't really like to do that, do we? We don't like submitting to authority. In uh, recent years, there's been a trend in the business world towards a flattening workplace hierarchy. Maybe you've seen that. So kind of moving away from top-down authority structures. And in 2016, uh, The Atlantic Online published an article about Zappos, an online shoe retailer who was moving to a more flattened hierarchy in the workplace. Uh, In 2013, this is from the article, Zappos CEO started promoting a new management structure called Holacracy. It's a setup that's supposed to encourage collaboration by eliminating workplace hierarchy. So no more authority, no more titles, no more bosses. The system asks workers to track all strategy decisions and their outcomes in a web-based app. It was a radical experiment to end the office workplace as we know it. But there was a result of holacracy that the company didn't anticipate, but probably should have, the article says, you think. Confusion. Self-governing, to say the least, produced a bit of a mess, with some workers unsure of how to get things done anymore. Those in charge of payroll, for instance, had trouble determining salaries after titles had been banished. Employees wanted a boss to consult when making important decisions. I'm not saying there's not necessarily merit to that or that it doesn't work for some companies. My point is, we don't like authority, but we need authority because without authority, there's confusion, is there not? And think about it, even in holacracy, if it works, what's the authority? They're all aligned to the company's mission. There's still authority. We all need authority. Uh, Several years ago, when we lived in Charleston, I was talking with a friend of mine about music, And he played guitar and told me that he enjoyed uh, playing blues. And he enjoyed playing blues because it was was free and improvisational. And he didn't really like or appreciate music that had fixed structures to them. And he kept really pushing on this. So I, I pointed out to him that the chord progressions 
on which he was improvising was based on a very strict, fixed structure, the 12-bar blues. And the guitar that he was playing on was built according to a very fixed structure with strings a certain size, with frets a certain distance apart, the strings a certain distance away from the frets to make those notes sound how they ought to sound. And that the very notes that he was using to improvise on, some of them sounded better than others because those notes were based on very fixed, structured musical scales. And even the process of tuning his guitar seemed like just twisting a knob, but the twisting of that knob has centuries and centuries of mathematics and fixed structures that all went in to him being able to tune his guitar up a half step. He conceded my point. But the point is, (laughs) you need authority. To be truly free, you've got to have authority. You've got to have fixed structures. All that authority over years and years and years was going into him being able to freely improvise on the blues. Speed limits, traffic lights, the officers that enforce them are frustrating to us at times. But if we did not have those, parents, would you feel free to let your 16-year-old get their license and drive out on the highway? Of course not. We need that authority to have the freedom to be able to drive and and be confident we're going to be safe. So we need authority. Say, okay, submitting to authority, it's it's tough to think about. It's tough to us to accept. I recognize that we need authority. But what about when the authority is unfair? What about when the authority is unjust? I mean... Again, he's talking about slaves and masters in this passage. What about when authority is abused? Well, Peter says this is where Christians can really be striking. This is when Christians can really stand out. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So it's, it's easy to submit to good and gentle authority, but how do we respond when the authority is unjust or unfair? Well, that's when Christians really have an opportunity to shine light in the darkness, is it not? When you can respect and listen and speak well of your mean boss. When you can respect and listen to and speak well of your professor who play, obviously plays favorites and you're not one of them when you refuse to get caught up in the whining and complaining about management with your coworkers, when you have a good attitude and you bring a peace and a poise and a hardworking attitude to your workplace, even when you're constantly understaffed and your boss doesn't do anything about it. It's continuing to work hard to give it everything you've got, even when you've not gotten a raise that you deserve or somebody else has gotten a promotion that you were more qualified for. Again, it's easy to submit to authority when it's good and gentle, but what about when it's unfair, when it's unjust? Well, then we have an opportunity to be striking and to shine light in the darkness. That's when you look like a stranger. Say, this person, this person doesn't belong here. Their true home is somewhere else. Don't misunderstand. It's not saying that there's not a place to challenge abuse of authority or to fight for justice for fair treatment. Uh, The Bible says that in plenty of other places and no passage can teach everything. But what this passage is saying is that it's so tempting when a difficult situation comes to say, if only I had a different boss, 
If only I had different management. If only I worked for a different company. If only I had different parents. This passage is challenging you instead to ask, how can I endure and respond in this situation in a way that pleases God? How can I be wonderful and striking because of who I am as a Christian? We're called to a posture of service that is pleasing to God, but I mean, this, this is incredibly difficult, is it not? Maybe even seems unrealistic. Or you realize and you're thinking, you're like, I've not been wonderful and striking at all. I've not stood out at all. I haven't shined any light into the darkness. How can I possibly obey this teaching? How can, I, how can I live in this way? How can I work like this to live in a way that is distinctively Christian? Peter goes on to point us to Christ as our pattern for service. He goes on to give Christ as our example. Verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So the word Peter uses there for an example is one that, that we're all familiar with. It comes from the classroom, uh, from the kindergarten classroom. It's, it's uh, the, the pattern of letters in the alphabet that children trace to learn their ABCs. And so Christ's suffering is the pattern that we're to exactly trace in our own lives. And then shifting the metaphor, you see Peter says we are to follow in Christ's footsteps, to put our feet in his. And so what pattern did Christ give us to trace in his suffering? What path did Christ give us to follow in his steps as he went to suffering at the cross? How did he respond in that situation? Verse 22 through 23. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. So in his path to the cross, Christ faced verbal abuse. Uh, He was slandered in court. Uh, He had false witnesses gathered against him. He was mocked by the onlookers. If you're really Jesus, save yourself. Come down from the cross. He was ridiculed by the Roman guards. Uh, he was even made fun of by, the, by one of the, the thieves that was hanging next to him as he was dying. And yet in all of this, Jesus refused to retaliate. Jesus refused to get back. Jesus refused to want to get even. And so what gave Jesus the ability to respond to suffering in this remarkable way? How did he do it? How did he respond so well in in the most horrific of situations. In verse 23, he continued entrusting himself to God who judges justly. So how can I have the ability to, to trace the pattern of Christ in my suffering? How can I follow in his footsteps? How can I love those who hate me? How can I speak kindly to those who speak unkindly to me or about me? How can I speak well of those who are gossiping about me? How can I give respect to someone, even though I know from experience they're not going to give it in return? How can I possibly do that? How can I live in that way? Following Christ's example to entrust yourself to God who judges justly. It's often thought that belief in a God 
who judges would lead to being harsh and judgmental ourselves, but it's actually the very opposite. Because think about it, it's only when you see that God is the judge that you'll be able to keep from being the judge yourself. Because isn't that what you're doing when you retaliate, uh, when you, you pay back in kind, when you get even with someone? You're putting yourself in the judge's seat. You're wanting to put that person in their place. You're wanting to give that person what you think they deserve. You're putting yourself in the judge's seat. And yes, your boss or your teacher or whoever it may be, yes, they've treated you unjustly. They've treated you unfairly. But do you fully know that person's heart? Do you fully know that person's motivations? Do you fully know that person's past experiences and and present situation? Only God knows what that person really deserves. And one day God's going to hold everyone accountable for everything. One day God's going to right all wrongs. He's going to correct all injustices. He's going to hold every word, every deed accountable. So if you can see that that's the case and say, God's going to take care of it one day, I'm going to leave it in his hands. I don't have to try to get even in this situation. You don't have to make yourself the judge. Entrust yourself to God who judges justly. Say, God, I know you've got this. I know one day you're going to take care of everything. So I can leave it in your hands. Jesus is our example in this. But Peter shows us Jesus cannot merely be our example. Jesus cannot just be the pattern for our service. If he is only an example, we're undone. He's got to also be the power of our service. Modern uh, liberal Christianity, and I'm using the word liberal in a theological sense, not a political sense. Uh, So modern uh, liberal Christianity is an attempt, was and is an attempt to make Jesus the pattern, but not the power. To make Jesus merely a good example. So, This modern liberal Christianity says, we like the moral teaching of Jesus. We like his good example. But what Peter talks about in verse 24, he bore our sins. No, I don't think so. Let's get this talk out of here as Jesus is our sin bearer, of Jesus as our substitute, of Jesus offering his body as a sacrifice. We need to get that out of here and just stick to the moral teaching and stick to Jesus as a good example. Jesus' suffering, Jesus' crucifixion, it's, it's just an example of love for us to follow. That's all it is. Nothing actually happened there with sin and, and judgment. It's just a, an example of love for us to follow. But is it? You think about it, if nothing actually happened at the cross, if Jesus did not actually bear sins, if Jesus was not our substitute in some way, if he was not a sacrifice, how can it be an example of sacrificial love if there was no sacrifice? So we would admire someone who would jump in front of a bullet to take it in place of another. But if somebody jumped in front of a bullet when there was nobody behind them, we'd think they were, they were silly. It was foolish. If a firefighter runs into a blazing inferno and rescues a child out of that home at the cost of their own life, we honor him, we admire him, we revere him. 
But if that firefighter ran into the home knowing there was nobody in there, we'd say he was throwing his life away. There's no sacrifice involved. So if Christ on the cross did not actually bear sins, then the whole idea of the cross is just silliness. It's ridiculous. It's a sham. So where are you going to get the power to obey Jesus' teaching? If you've reflected at all on those brief examples I gave you, I think we can all recognize, oh my goodness, I haven't been doing that. (laughs) Where are you going to get the power to actually obey Jesus' teaching? Have you looked at his teaching? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Lend expecting nothing in return. You think you can follow that in your own power? Well, you can go for it. (laughs) See how it works out for you. Say, but then what about the rest of us who are selfish to the core like I am? How are we going to get the power to obey it if Jesus is only an example? If Jesus is only our example, if he's only a pattern, that, that crushes us. We can't live up to that. But if on the cross, he, as Peter says, bore our sins in his body on the tree, if Jesus has actually cast his body into the flames in our place so that we would not be consumed, if he on the tree took the shame and the curse in our place so that we could have the blessing of eternal life, if Jesus goes to the deep darkness in our place, I was looking at... at, uh, the Good Friday meditations that, that I'm working on for, for Holy Week. And, and it struck me as I was looking that when the Bible says that, that uh, the deep darkness descended on Jesus, it was three in the afternoon. It was three in the afternoon. That was a supernatural thing. God was saying, look, deep darkness is coming on Jesus. He's going to the abyss in our place so that we could be brought into the kingdom of light. If Jesus has his father turn his face away and cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me to bring us back to God? If by his wounds we are healed, then the cross becomes the power of God in your life. When you see that, Verse 24, he bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So how do you get the power to begin to live this way? In your workplace, in the the classroom, in the home, wherever it may be. Not just by seeing that Jesus loved his enemies, but that he loved you even while you were his enemy. So how do you get the power not to retaliate when somebody speaks ill towards you? Or does something. How do you resist the urge to retaliate and get even and pay back? It's not just, well, Jesus didn't pay back. It's no, Jesus hasn't paid you back what you deserve for what you've done to him. You've got to see that it's in your own life. To take it in your own life is a power. How will you have the power to stay silent in the surrounding gossip or to refrain from laughing at a coarse joke or whatever it is? It's not just Jesus stayed silent, but Jesus stayed silent for me as my sin was placed on his shoulders. How do you have the power to speak well of of a harsh boss? 
It's not just Jesus spoke kindly to his persecutors. It's ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And when you see that, then you can treat others in the way that Jesus has taught us to do. How do you have the power to endure in a difficult situation and respond in a way that pleases God? How do you get the power to endure that? It's not just Jesus endured the cross. He endured it for me in my place. Then the cross becomes not just a pattern, but a power. And you see that working out in your own life and in your relationships and in your calling. I think I can be confident in saying that, that there are some of you here this morning Uh, Regardless of what your theology is or your beliefs are on paper, I I can be pretty confident there's some this morning for whom Jesus is your example, but he's not your sin bearer. Jesus is your pattern, but he's not your power. And you know it, you can feel it. You're trying to live, you're trying to measure up. And you said, there's only guilt, there's only condemnation. I can't possibly do it. There's no power Will you say this morning it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished? His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Look to him not just as your example, but as your sin bearer. Take him into your life as your power. And then you'll be able to trace his pattern. Then you can follow in his footsteps to have this wonderful and striking way of life that he calls us to. So that others will take notice so they'll see your good deeds and they'll glorify God on the day he visits us. I'll just give you one quick example. Uh, A member of our church when we lived in Charleston one day was commended by his manager in the presence of fellow co-workers uh, because he didn't get caught up in the gossip and complaining of his co-workers. And that manager commended him in the sight of all his co-workers. And then later on we find out that worker had an opportunity to share the good news of Christ with that manager in a down moment in the office. She saw there was a power at work in, that, in his life. And she said, tell me about that. What is it that, that enables you to do that? And he was able to share the good news of Christ with her. Maybe there have been other opportunities. I don't know. Perhaps she's going to be among those we see glorifying God on the day of visitation because he didn't gossip about a coworker. You ever think about that? Do you ever think you could see somebody in heaven one day because you spoke a kind word? I mean, that, that's remarkable to think about, isn't it? Yes, gospel proclamation, we've got to share the good news, but here it's the good deeds that are attracting people to the good news. So what does it look like for you in the work that God has called you to, in the context that God has placed you, in the situations that God has you on a daily basis? How can you, with Christ, is not just your pattern, but your power, how can you have a wonderful and striking way of life? How can you shine light into the darkness? not because we're wonderful, but because we have a wonderful Savior. Let's pray. Father, uh, we ask that you would 
by your Holy Spirit. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts to see Jesus. Yes, as our example, but first as our sin bearer. Yes, as our pattern, but also our power to enable us to trace that pattern. Help us to look to him and to bring that power of the good news down into the nitty gritty of our everyday work and life and relationships. Do this by your grace, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.